Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts, as is our habit. When we do a theme lesson, we try to also do a, a lesson from the book of Acts. So we will be covering Acts chapter 9, uh, at least the uh, first portion of it. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and we will be studying down through verse 31, the story of Saul's conversion, uh, as you have it there in the text. So, as I approach this topic, uh, I, you know, as you probably know, having studied the book of Acts many times in your lives, as probably many of us have, there are three tellings of the conversion of Saul. You've got this one here in Acts chapter 9. It's again over in Acts 22, and I think Acts 24 also. You've got these, these three different tellings of Saul's conversion. And there are some differences between them, little details added here or added there. Uh, but they are generally speaking the same story. One is Luke's telling of the story, and then the other two are Saul's, or at that point, Paul's retelling of the story, his experience, and what he went through. And if we're going through the, the text as we are, I, I had a this, you know, kind of this inner battle of do I kind of wrap them all up into one lesson or do I try to find the significant details that are different in each one and try to present them as three different texts with different focuses and, uh, you know, as you, you have options as a, as a preacher and how you're going to approach a particular text. And one of the things as I read through the text trying to prepare myself and what I would say, uh, there was a, an, an interesting thing that stuck out to me this time that probably had not stuck out to me before in this very familiar story. And it's that while Saul is the main character of this story in Acts chapter 9, most of the events are not events Saul does, but they are events that happens to Saul. Never thought about this before. But I started going through the details of the story. And you've got Saul. Saul's main action in this story is that he is going and getting permission so that he might persecute the Christians outside of Jerusalem, particularly in the city of Damascus. But as you know the story, he, he gets the permission. He travels with a group of people down to Damascus. And he has this, this vision. He's stopped. He's, he sees Jesus. He has a conversation with Jesus. Uh, he hears Jesus speaking to him, and he speaks back. And Jesus basically says, stop doing this. And I want you to go into Damascus, and you'll be told what you need to do. And we know Saul was blinded by the event. He goes into Damascus. He waits there for several days uh, while fasting and praying and Ananias comes to him. And in Acts chapter 9, you've got a long explanation of the conversation that, that Jesus has with Ananias. And then Ananias comes and baptizes Saul. Well, after that, the, the Christians there in Damascus 
receive Saul. They, they kind of welcome Saul into their midst, and, and they, they hear his conversion. They're excited about it, and the Jews in the area hate Saul, and they want to kill him because he's going out and preaching the truth and trying to refute them, and he is very capable in doing that. And so they want to kill him, and the Christians rescue him by letting him down out of Damascus through a basket over the wall, and he is able to go free. He goes back to Jerusalem, and there the Christians have a little bit of difficulty with this this former persecutor supposedly turned to being a Christian, and so Barnabas supports him. But what's interesting as you go through the events of that story is a lot of the story is not really about Saul's actions. Saul just kind of gets stopped in his tracks. There's not really much else he can do. The story really focuses on everyone else's actions and all the things that's happening to Saul as he is being faced with a risen Lord, Jesus, who he has been persecuting and now has decided to follow. And so Saul's story really only happens because of the obedience. That drives me nuts that somehow the formatting put my text on top of my picture. I, I apologize. Somehow... You see, as you go through the story, Saul's obedience is really the story of everyone else's obedience. We let Saul be the hero of the story, but I wonder how much story there would be if all the other people hadn't been being who they were supposed to be. Jesus doesn't tell him to be baptized. He sends Ananias to tell him to be baptized. And we can assume that Saul had some understanding of the teaching of the way of Christianity, but we don't know how much he knew. But Ananias obeys and comes and, and teaches him what he needs to do. And then Saul could have been rejected and, and, and fallen away because there was nobody for him to connect himself to because of his history in persecuting the church, but the church instead forgives and receives him. I wonder how different the story would be if that hadn't happened. And, and if they hadn't protected him by letting him down over the wall in a basket so that he wasn't murdered by his own kinsmen. And then though, later on in Jerusalem, how different the story would be if Jerusalem had just, and the apostles had just rejected him and sent him away because they don't believe his conversion. How different the story would be if everybody else hadn't done the things that they were supposed to do. And so I find this to be, while it is the story of Saul's conversion, it is also the story of others' obedience. And that's where I want to focus the story tonight. You know, Saul is corrected. We see that in the story. Uh, he, back from chapter, uh, you, you, you see him first cry, or first become a character in the story back in chapter 7 uh, when they are gathered together to stone Stephen and it says there then they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul and then in chapter 8 at the beginning Saul approved of his of his execution uh, and then a, a, a persecution arose against the church chapter 8 verse 3 but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
You get to chapter 9, and Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul is a persecutor. And not just a persecute whenever it's convenient or when somebody passes his way and he gets a hint from the strange things that they say, but he is seeking people out. I, I look at this and I compare it to some of the events from history like the Inquisition, uh, where you've got people who are uh, the Salem witch trials, all these times in history where people are just basically uh, accused of something and they are assumed guilty until they are proven innocent. That happens a lot. We see that happen today even in our own country. Uh, somebody is accused of being a bigot. Everybody assumes they are truly a bigot until they can prove they're innocent. Uh, we had several years ago a friend who was accused of um, um, doing wrong things to a, a child. And in doing that, he, he was accused and assumed guilty, thrown in jail, spent, I think, almost two years in jail waiting on his court case to take place because he was assumed guilty until he was proven innocent. And he was acquitted in his case. But he lost two years of his life in a jail trying to fight with a lawyer about why he was innocent, how he could prove his innocence because he was, he was assumed guilty. I think Saul probably had fairly well the same attitude here about Christianity. If you were accused of Christianity, Paul just drug you out of your house, took you back to Jerusalem from Damascus so that they could sort out the details later. Seems like he's pretty zealous against Christianity. And yet we know that he's, as he's on his way to Damascus, uh, he sees a light from heaven shining around him. He falls, he hears a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He replies and he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, that, that stops Saul right there in his tracks. He, he knows at this point he's been wrong. You don't just hear voices from heaven accompanied by blinding lights, right? Has anybody else had this problem recently? I, I, I mean, it, he can't really deny that. He had a conversation with Jesus. Well, the only way to have a conversation with Jesus speaking from heaven would be as if Jesus dwelt in heaven. Well, that pretty well identified this Jesus whom he is persecuting is approved by God, is dwelling with God, and does have power. And so he goes into town, and it says in verse 9, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. He listens, he goes into Damascus as he's told to, and he fasts. Now, what's interesting is that section there is nine verses. This next section about Ananias is longer. 
because it is the story seems to focus not as much on Saul but as, but on the people around Saul the the people that God put in place to make this situation happen the way God wanted it to happen so God comes to Ananias the Lord says to him in a vision Ananias he says here I am Lord and the Lord says I want you to get up go to this street to this house and there is a man there named Saul who was fasting and without sight and I want you to lay hands on him so he can regain his sight now notice he doesn't say anything about baptism here I find that interesting go to this place he is praying. He's seen in a vision. I, I've shown him you coming to him and laying hands on him so he can receive his sight. Well, Ananias immediately knows what's going on. But, but Lord, he's a persecutor. He, he's not somebody we want to associate with. And, of course, Jesus' answer is he is a chosen instrument of mine. So I love what it says there in verse 17. So, Ananias went. Ananias went. He entered the house. He laid hands on him. He told him that he needed to regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he arose and he was baptized. This story is incredible. Because I... I I can't imagine being in Ananias' shoes. We don't have a Saul person or character that we can relate this story to, do we? I, I'm not aware myself of an individual who has the same amount of influence, clout, and ability to persecute me and my family that I can look at and say they are like Saul and the way that we should be scared of them. Ananias was right in being scared of Saul. And, and while we might sometimes talk about us being persecuted by the culture or us being persecuted or dismissed by the government, we don't have a, a person who is a villain in our life who stands against our Christianity and in front of whom we are at risk. But Ananias did. And God told him, go to the villain and expose yourself as a Christian. That, that had to be hard. I, I don't know, because we're not told in the story, if, if Saul had a list of names to go off of, well, we've heard that this one and this one and this one have proclaimed Jesus, and therefore they're on the, the like priority list of who we need to arrest and bring back to Jerusalem. My suspicion is if he did, Ananias' name would probably have been on there. But God tells him to go, and so he goes. He went. He did what God asked him to do. That had to be incredibly difficult. But it is part of what makes our story exist. He obeys despite the danger. 
Then there's the story of the Damascus church. It says there, this is the end of verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This church brought him in. And while they were confounded by him, that didn't change the fact that they, they accepted him as a brother. When, when they knew that he was baptized, they were amazed by the fact that he was baptized, that he had changed, that he had done a complete 180. He had grown, gone from being a persecutor to a supporter. And they were amazed by it. Amazed to the point to where they were willing to forgive him for what he had done. I, my suspicion is the Jews in Damascus had family in the church in Jerusalem. My suspicion is probably some of these Christians in Damascus had, had been at the, the, the negative end of Saul's persecution. Or at least had family that were. Yet because of their willingness to forgive and love and treat one another with, with the kind of love that we talked about this morning, they were willing to accept an enemy as a friend and a co-worker. And I tell you, what makes that so amazing is that that kind of conversion story are the most powerful, wonderful displays of the way the gospel works. We have a tendency as people to reject people who aren't like us. Somebody who's covered in tattoo sleeves, maybe they, they've got uh, piercings all over their face and, and you just look at them and wince in pain because just imagine how, how horrifying that would have been to get all those holes put in there. Somebody who's who's something as simple as their hair is different than ours. I was in Lowe's the other day, and there was this lady there who had dreadlocks. I haven't seen dreadlocks in years, but this lady had dreadlocks to the extreme. I had, I'd been a long time since I'd seen them like that. That's different. That's, that's, that's different than me. Uh, it, it might be a skin color thing. It might be an economic thing. They, they're just... We assume, because of the way they're dressed, that they're just going to come in here and ask for money. I've been guilty of that. We have a tendency to assume that people with different stories than ours, they smell of alcohol, they smell of smoke, they smell of weed, that, that they're, they're not going to be willing. They're not going to listen. They're not interested in changing. They're not interested in having a better life of commitment to Jesus. They're, they're, not, they're not interested. And so what we tend to do is we back off. 
And I think sometimes we back off because of fear. Sometimes we back off because we just assume. Sometimes we back off because we, we just, it's easier. But I tell you, some of the greatest stories I've ever heard have been from that biker or from that drug addict or from that alcoholic or from that person with all the piercings. Some of the best stories I've ever heard, some of the greatest workers in the kingdom I've ever seen have been the people who have been forgiven the most sin. Isn't that what Jesus taught? Whenever he was in the Pharisee's house and the woman comes in and she's washing his feet and she's a known prostitute and, and that, that servant said, or that, that Pharisee said, well, if he knew, if he were truly a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman that was touching him. He says, hey, who loves more? The one who has been forgiven much or the one who has been forgiven little? I tell you, the, the ones who have been forgiven much even though they are, they're not like you and me probably in a lot of ways. They are the ones who love Christ the most. And we need to not rob them of that. We need to remember that that is the greatest display. When you see somebody's life who didn't just change from a, I grew up in the church and have always been a good person kind of lifestyle, but they've changed from drug addiction and alcoholism and a life that was completely absent of God. When they change from that kind of life, that is the gospel in action. And we need to realize how, how wonderful that is. I think one of the big things we're going to see in the next several years, I, I, I pray, is that we're going to be bringing people to Christ who are coming out of uh, transgenderism, coming out of homosexuality, coming out of confusion from a society that has left them with too many questions and with too many answers, and they're finding Jesus finally but we're going to have to know how to deal with some of those things. I, I, have, I have asked for years the question of what do you do with somebody who has chosen an alternative lifestyle but has also chosen transgenderism or, or some sort of change operation in their life and now they're claiming to be one thing but they're actually something else but they're married to this and that's not an appropriate marriage and now we've got this all this this mixed up scenario what do we do with that i, I tell you if if we treat it the way we treat it oftentimes we'll just <laughs> I, I, hands off on that one i tell you if you can pull somebody from a multitude of sin, they will love their Savior. And that's what you see here with, with the Damascus church and, and Saul. Saul had done all sorts of horrible things until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it caused him to be a powerful influence for the gospel. And this church was willing to accept him. I pray we will also.
says Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. The Damascus Jews, interestingly, had the exact opposite approach. They hated Saul. They didn't like what he was arguing. They weren't willing to listen. And it's interesting that what it says there, it says he confounded the Jews. It wasn't that they had clear ground to stand on. It's that they had no ground to stand on. When Paul came, Saul came and talked to them about Jesus, they had no answer for the things Saul was saying. He completely turned their world upside down. But instead of listening to the fact that Jesus was the Savior, they were willing to just stay with their understanding of things. And they decided to kill Saul, and they watched the gates day and night, and they wanted to eliminate the problem. They couldn't refute the message, so what do you do? You get rid of the messenger. And that's what they try to do. But I love that the Damascus church said, you know what? We got to take care of him. They protected Saul. You know, that's what a community does for each other. They protect one another. Uh, it, it is interesting to me that over the years, and we quit using this term, but the church building or the, 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 the gathering place of Christians used to be called sanctuary. What did that term come to mean back in years gone by? especially back in medieval times, if you were in trouble, you could run to the sanctuary, and in the sanctuary, you were safe. You couldn't be arrested. You, it was kind of uh, like one of those cities back in the Old Testament, the cities of refuge. That, that's what the church building became. Well, that's what the church community should be. This is my sanctuary. It doesn't matter what I face in the world. It doesn't matter what kind of persecution. It doesn't matter what kind of difficulties I deal with out there. I come here, and I don't mean here as in geographical location or building. I mean here in your midst. I come here, and this is my safe place. That's the way the community of God's people should be. That we come here to be encouraged and lifted up, and, 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 and that's our responsibility. We, we, can, we can faithfully serve together no matter what the consequences look like. That's what they provided for Saul, and it's what we can provide still. Well, the story goes on. He had come to Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples there in Jerusalem, but they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe in his conversion. Now, it was easier for the Damascus church to believe because they had witnesses of his conversion. Ananias could come out and say, hey, he truly is. Uh, he, he was baptized. He was praying and fasting. Jesus appeared to me in a vision. He told me to go and baptize him. If we believe in, in Jesus, if we believe in baptism, if we believe in conversion, then we have to accept him. And so he's accepted there. Back in Jerusalem, they've got no eyewitness of that. So when he gets there, they don't, they don't want to accept him. But look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. 
Barnabas takes this and runs with it. Don't you just love Barnabas? I mean, we need a world full of Barnabases, don't we? Here's what I find particularly interesting about this detail of Barnabas. How did Barnabas know that he had seen the Lord on the road to Damascus? And how did Barnabas know that he had been preaching boldly back in the city of Damascus? He investigated it. He wasn't willing to just dismiss this offhand because it was easier to make the problem go away than it was to figure out what to do about it. He was willing to investigate He chooses not to be afraid like everybody else. He chooses to support Saul, even if it meant the defamation of his own reputation. He was willing to investigate, get the story, and then stand by the truth. We need Christians who are willing to do that for each other. Don't we? One of my my greatest examples as an early preacher was my brother-in-law, Paul. We constantly had people come by the building and they would ask for for things. And, you know, we didn't do that out of the church treasury and so people would would volunteer money. Well, Paul was one of those who wasn't, he he didn't want to give to a situation that wasn't a genuine situation. Well, what a lot of people do when they feel that way is that they just don't give. They just kind of walk away from it. Not Paul. Paul would say, all right, Tell me your situation. He'd get their story, he'd investigate it. He would go back with them to their home. So I remember one occasion we had a man come in, and uh, he, he was dropped off, I think, and he told us that he was staying down in an RV park that was about 20 minutes away, uh, but that he had a huge hole in the floor of his trailer, so they couldn't move it, but they didn't have the money to pay the, uh, the weekly fee in order to stay there in the RV park. And so he was going to have to lose his home and just desert it uh, if he couldn't come up with money until he could get the floor fixed and all of those types of things. Well, it was a long, elaborate story. And all the time when people come in asking for money, there's always a story that goes along with it. Paul was willing to say, you know what? Hey, you got dropped off. Let me carry you home. Let me see the hole in the floor. Uh, not, not in a suspicious way. It was a, let me figure out what supplies we need, and we'll figure out what we can do. And so he takes the man home. There really is a hole in the floor. He really can't move the trailer because of the hole in the floor. And so he, Paul, goes down to the, the lumber yard the next day, takes off work, if I remember correctly, takes off work, goes buys plywood, fixes the hole in the floor, makes it movable, and then they're able to move him to, I think, to a cheaper park, and he was able to give him money to make sure that he was taken care of for the next several weeks. Now, that took a lot of time and effort, but he was willing to investigate the problem in order to figure out what the real solution was instead of just toss it to the side. Shouldn't we be willing to do that for our brothers and sisters? Shouldn't we be willing to do that whenever somebody moves into town and we want to know how we can help them grow? 
And so we have some conversations with them, not of suspicion, not of interrogation, but, hey, how can we serve you, and how can you get involved in what we're trying to do as a group of God's people? Let, let's build our relationship in such a way that we're now able to help and support each other. Wouldn't that be good if we did that kind of thing? Because that's what you see Barnabas doing here for Saul. Barnabas doesn't just dismiss him because he's a problem that needs to go away. Barnabas investigates, and he investigates to a point to where he is able to rightly support Saul as he's joining the church. The church in Jerusalem also protected Saul because of the work of Barnabas. Barnabas uh, supported him. And so it says in verse 20, uh, I think that's 28, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when his brothers learned it, they brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. The church supported him. You know, for a church that didn't have the technologies that we have today, they didn't have the way of, of looking someone up on the internet and finding out their history. Uh, we can look up almost anything about anyone these days. They didn't have any of that. They, they didn't have a real easy way to just call down to Brother, Brother Smith in Damascus and say, hey, tell me what happened. None of that. They had to believe in one another, support one another, find ways to believe the best in one another, protect one another. And in a, a world that was persecuting them, that became really important. Can you imagine, again, how Saul's story would have been different had Ananias told Jesus, no, I'm too scared, I don't want to do it. Or had the church in Damascus said, no, we, we don't like this. It, it gives us bad feeling. Make him go away. Or if Barnabas hadn't stepped in and said, hey, I'm going to figure out the details and then I'm going to take charge and make sure that you are supported. Or if the church in Jerusalem hadn't protected him from the Hellenistics who were willing to, wanting to kill him. How different our story would be how Saul is responsible for writing so much of our New Testament and for spreading the gospel in so many different places in the world at that point. If none of that had happened because the church was unwilling to do what God had called them to do, it would have been so different. And so we come to this passage here at the end of our story, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea, I, I love the way it puts it there, so the church, like because of this, when you see because they were being who they were called to be, that's the way I interpret the word so there, because they were being who they were called to be, because they fellowshiped and supported and lifted up, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. That's a beautiful description of what we are as the church. That if we will just be 
who we are supposed to be. If I will support my brother and sister the way I'm supposed to. If I will, will stand beside them even when it might affect my own reputation. If I am willing to, to go do the things the Lord has called me to do. If I am willing to, to protect my brothers and sisters from the world. If I am willing to be who God has called me to be, we will be a church that is full of peace and is strong and is increasing in number. But it requires each one of us to step up and do our individual part, as we talked about this morning. And I, I hope that's us. I, I hope that's you. I hope that's me. I, I don't know if I'm a Saul, a, a great preacher in the makings. I, I don't know if I'm a Barnabas a great encourager who will stand by a brother or a sister no matter what. I don't know if I'm a, 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 church, a church member who, who's willing to step up and, and forgive. I, I don't know who I am in this story. But I know if each one of us is being who we're supposed to be, it will be amazing to see what God can do. If you're not a child of God, I encourage you to become one. That's what, that's what Saul did. Now, I, I don't think you need a bright light to shine from heaven and a voice to come out of the clouds in order to teach you what you need to do. It's interesting. Even when Saul had that experience, where did he learn the truth? From a brother. Or a soon-to-be brother for him at that point. Ananias came and told him, we read over in Acts chapter 22... Well, then arise and be baptized and call upon the name of the Lord. Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Well, that's what I, I offer to you tonight. If you're not a child of God, what I want you to do tonight is get up, be baptized, and have your sins washed away. If that's what you need, we want to do that for you tonight. The water is ready. We're ready. If you're ready, let's make that happen. If you need the invitation to get your life right and become a child of God, please come forward as we stand and sing this song. Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation, or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.